preserving the history of Strategic Air Command, the Cold War, and aerospace artifacts. Welcome to the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. Coming to you from the museum just off I-80 at exit 426. Now here's your host, Museum Marketing Director, John Leffler, Jr. Welcome back. It's been a while. The Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. I am John Leffler, Jr., Marketing Director here at the museum. And this is either going to be the best podcast we've ever had or the worst idea that I have ever had. No, I'm kidding. It's going to be a lot of fun. We are talking about the F-117, and that is all we're talking about uh, for this edition of our podcast. Before we jump into it, though, did want to remind you about a couple of events that we have coming up at the museum beginning with Father's Day weekend, June 19th and 20th. We have our second annual Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum uh, car show. I wanna thank Brad and the folks with the Ashland Chamber of Commerce and uh, all of our supporters and partners that are taking part. We're gonna have a bunch of vehicles here in the museum throughout the entire weekend. Great opportunity uh, for you to get the family together, come on out, and we just confirmed here actually yesterday that the uh, Nebraska's first and only astronaut, Clay Anderson, is going to be here as well. So we're going to be uh, having him for a uh, what we'll actually are planning to do is uh, record a uh, podcast with a live audience in our theater. You'll have a chance to ask him questions. He'll be here signing books, doing photographs. Uh, signing autographs. It'll be a, a ton of fun. That's our Father's Day car show coming up June 19th and 20th. Also want to remind you that uh, we are underway with our summer camps as well. Aviation, aerospace, robotics, drones, just to name a few of the uh, STEM-related activities that uh, your kid can be involved in. We've got one and three-day camps. Uh, those are going through July 30th. You can learn both about the, uh, the summer camps as well as the uh, Father's Day car show, June 19th and 20th at sacmuseum.org. So the F-117, our Nighthawk, the stealth fighter, it is here. It is down in restoration. In fact, you can go down now and uh, and check it out, walk right up to it. There's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done with the F-117, and we'll visit with our restoration manager, Andy Beamer, a little bit later in the show to talk about that, but um, want to bring in first our uh, president and CEO, Jeff Cannon, and our curator, Brian York, to just talk a little bit, kind of rehash, go back, rewind here. We've been talking so much, and there's been so much excitement around the F-117 arriving and now being here, but really where this whole story started for us with getting this F-117, Jeff. Hey, John, thank you very much. Uh, the, the journey of the F-117 stealth fighter to uh, Ashland, Nebraska, actually, it's been a two-and-a-half-year journey. It was November of 2018 when we were first informed that the aircraft were going to be available to museums. When we heard that, we jumped. We jumped fast. We got in line. We said, we want one as soon as we can possibly get one. And then uh, they started the demil process on the aircraft. And then, of course, COVID hit. And that set everything back by over a year. Well, we were expecting this aircraft a while back, but I can't tell you how excited we are now after this two and a half year journey of getting one of the most significant modern aircraft from the end of the Cold War into this museum, the Strategic Air Command Aerospace Museum. What a journey it's been, Brian. Yeah, it's been in fact, and Brian, I was going to ask you about just what happens to these aircraft if if we don't send you know three of our guys down there to go pick it up with a crew i mean it it learned the more i've learned about this the more it's it's kind of staggering to me i mean are these things are just trashed uh well it unfortunately that can happen uh they've got a whole process as far as getting them out to museums uh when the pandemic hit there were some museums that were set to take an f-117 that had to pull back. They weren't. They they had to reassess. It wasn't that they weren't going to take one. It's just that they had to reassess where they're at, and that helped us out because we were, you know, as Jeff said, we were ready to rock and roll. We were ready to take it right away. Uh, so it bumped us up in the queue a little bit. Uh, they anticipate having some that will not get picked up by museums, but it's also needs everyone needs to understand they're still flying a couple of them. They're using these to. One, test some new technology. It gives them a great platform to do that. And they're also using it to train fighter pilots, not necessarily in the 117, but against the 117. 
So ones that don't get picked up by museums, those become your spare parts bin. And Brian, you brought up a really good point. And I think something, you know, a lot of questions that we've got, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, at SAC Museum. But Jeff, one of the questions that we get is, is how many combat missions are our aircraft flew? And the answer is zero. <laughs> but, but it's still a very significant F-117 in the, in the scheme of, of the, the, that whole, all of the, the aircraft that were built. Yes, RF-117-0831, which is its tail number, was one of the aircraft that was used for most of the research uh, behind the stealth technology. And so it had actually a lot of uh, different uh, systems that were placed in it and then replaced with other systems. So we wanted this aircraft in particular because of, of a couple of major reasons. Number one, it had the most research flight hours, and that fits right into our STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math programs. Number two, uh, this aircraft, when they were retired the first time was the very last one to fly. And so it wasn't the combat missions that we were interested in. It was the technology. It was the innovation. It was American innovation that we were looking at in this aircraft. And that's why we wanted this one. So is this F-117 like Genesis? I mean, is this like, is it, is it sort of like the beginning of the beginning kind of for, for the F-117 program? Well, ours wasn't the first one built, but ours was chosen to be basically the platform to test upgrades to the F-117 program uh, and then eventually into uh, processes for future programs. Uh, that's what kept it basically in the United States, what kept it flying so much and what kind of made it the last aircraft to fly in the original program. So we, we went through all the excitement of actually realizing that we were gonna have this amazing aircraft in the museum. Then Jeff, as you mentioned, COVID hit. Finally, rubber meets the road and the planning begins and we send our task force uh, you know, down to uh, Tonopah to pick up our F-117. And that included you, Brian, and going to bring in now our education director, uh, Mark Straley, and our facilities director, uh, Jeff Kalaski. So you guys were you 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 were the three amigos that headed down to uh, um, headed down to the the Tonopah test range. Now, you guys, I have to say first and foremost before we jump into any more of this, that I know that myself, the people here at the museum, the team. Um, everyone else that follows us really appreciates all of the photographs, the video, all of the updates on everything that happened. It was really genuinely fun to fun follow for you us guys. Too. Yeah, I know it was for you guys. And uh, clearly, it looked like it was a lot of fun. Have you had your coffee, Jeff? <laughs> I just finished cup number one. And we're going to probably be through cup four before this thing <laughs> is done. But the trip down to Tonopah, it, it's interesting because it's an area, the Tonopah test range is where you went to pick up our F-117. Sort of, I mean, just describe this area because from the photographs and the videos, it looks like you're watching like the beginning of a movie or something, you know, like a Western or some. It, it, it's, it's pretty much the middle of nowhere and it's done on purpose. It's we we took uh, from Tonopah, the bustling metropolis of Tonopah. Uh, we had to drive Population 12 miles. <laughs> we, had to, we had to drive uh, approximately 13 miles to get to a highway that went 20 miles. And the only place that highway went was to the base. So how far is, I mean, we're, we're in Nevada. Tonopah Test Range is in Nevada. How far away are we from, from Vegas where you guys flew in? Three hours. Uh, well, it's three and a half hours. It's, it's funny. Is the base is probably three hours from Vegas. But we had to drive three and a half hours to Tonopah and then drive an hour to the base. And it's just because in Nevada, anybody that knows Nevada, they've got a lot of wide open space and they don't have roads going to everywhere. It's, you gotta take roundabout ways. It, it kind of takes you back to the, uh, the joke of, you can't get there from here. Mm -hmm. uh, so fortunately uh, we had, you know, the three of us, uh, we had expert navigation, uh, <laughs> me. <laughs> Um, the maximum speed we could hit, I, I, who was driving? Yeah. It all depends on who's driving and when we had to be there. Uh, I, I will say that Kalaski really didn't work. break any motor vehicle laws, maybe a few physics laws, but yeah. other than that, uh, but it is, it's the way they designed that base and getting to it. Uh, when you get off the main highway, 
to travel the 20 miles. You go curving around hills uh, to where you don't see the front gate for, until you're about three miles from it. Mark, what were your first impressions as you, as you kind of roll up and you, and you saw the test range for the first time? Well, this is after that we'd been in Tonopah City proper, and it was very isolated. When you drive down that final 20-mile strip to get to the gate, there's mountains on both sides, and there's no other way in, as Brian mentioned earlier. When you actually hit the gate, um, it's like any other military base. doesn't look particularly well-protected. Uh, on the other hand, sometimes the absence of visuals is an indicator that there's a lot more going on. Yeah. And it should be noted, too, that Brian, Mark, and Jeff all have military background and, and actually current military activity that's 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 going on. So it's I, I would imagine that for you guys, there was maybe a little bit more knowledge of what certain visual cues meant as far as his base was concerned jeff for you what what could you what could you actually see when when you pulled up i mean was would this be something that for say i don't know a civilian like myself that you'd be able to tell okay this place has got some serious no no you like brian said you drive up you know you're on kind of an isolate it's like fear and loathing like you're you're looking at nothing but desert and tumbleweed and that sort of thing. And then you pull up to the base and it's, you know, you see a couple buildings and a, and a chain link gate essentially. And you know, you, uh, in a parking lot, so you park in the parking lot. And if you don't know what it is, I mean, obviously there was a sign that said Tonopah test range, but it, you know, you're not seeing, you know, UFOs and aircrafts and things like that flying around. And well, not, well, know, not many of them anyway, not yeah, very right. many of them. Well, and that's a whole other story, too, because there was a entire line, you know, a, a thread that was running during your trip back for people that were convinced mm -hmm. that somebody was carrying a UFO on the back of a flatbed um, across, you know, the southwestern United States. And there was a lot of people that had to kind of step in and remind them, no, that's not what this is. Well, it, it didn't seem real hard to convince some folks in that area that we actually dug up a UFO from the desert. Yeah. So what's the staffing like out there? I mean, how, how many how many people are actually at the Tonopah test range or could you get a sense? You, I didn't really get a sense myself. Mark, just a reminder that sort of like nonverbal cues doesn't really work for a podcast. <laughs> so so here's here's what I'll say. They didn't tell us the number of people that were there. You could see a number of dormitories, which we were told aren't really in use very much anymore. Mm -hmm. And then there is an airline that everyone knows about called Janet, and Janet flies in and out of Las Vegas, 155 miles away. And while we were there, I saw two aircraft go in and out. So what we're seeing is an isolated base with whatever number of people it has, they don't really want you to know, and there's a lot of compartmentalized programs on it. And that's about all we can infer. So is it just the technicians that we had that came back to supervise the uh, the offloading uh, of our F-117? Was that, were those really the only folks that you spoke to when you were there? We saw two people in uniform, and those were the gate guards. We, we, there, there were three gate guards there, to, uh, two that were there processing us in. They were doing a change over when we left. And yes, they were armed. Uh, they were very friendly people, uh, though you always had the sense that if you made any sudden move, you'd probably be thrown to the sure. floor, uh, which I did try to get Mark to move quickly, but he wouldn't do it. Because I'm just slow. <laughs> but the, as far as uh, the technicians, they had, I think, most of their crew there for the loading of the aircraft. So we got to meet a lot of those guys. And, and honestly, they were some of the nicest guys, you know, around, very happy about the job they do and excited uh, to see the aircraft going to a good home. Did Do they, and I'm going to bring Andy in here for a second, did they give you any sense of prior to the, the Nighthawk being loaded of what exactly you're going to have to be working on? Because I know that between what we thought was going to have to happen to our F-117 and probably what the list is now there is a little bit of a difference oh until you have the whole thing in-house i don't think you really see what the job is um the size of it or the scope of it um <clears throat> we had drawings and we could make lists but like anything else you don't understand something until it's in front of you um yeah do it does it look bigger 
does the yeah does the airplane look bigger than 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 you think when you're looking sure. at photographs sure. or when it's all together? Yes. Does that does it does the job look bigger? Probably. Um, does it look insurmountable? No. But yeah, there's um, you know there's a lot of lot of leading edges and trailing edges that that um, when you put the whole thing together, you just kind of go, oh my. Yeah. And the thing that's interesting to me is that we're really dealing with 1970s tech with this, with this F-117. I think some folks get the sense that it's, you know, you get inside the cockpit and it's maybe it's all just a one big digital screen and it's all touch this, that, and the other, and, and you're moving things. I mean, it's, it feels like you're in the, and not that I've ever been in one, but it feels like you're, would be like in the cockpit of a TIE fighter or something from Star Wars. I mean, it has to have that vibe to it. But one thing that I was curious about was um, the whole delay with us getting this. There were lots of questions. Everybody was like, hey, we thought you guys were getting your F-117. There was a lot of prep that they had to do down at Tonopah, Brian, with the getting the aircraft ready for us to have in a civilian museum because of the actual materials that were on that F-117. You can pick that up and just move it in front of you. It's not going to be. And and no, I'm not picking up the 117 and putting it in front of me. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's there's a whole demil process, and the, any aircraft that we would get from a military source is going to go through that. Uh, partly because there's going to be pieces that they are going to hang on to, especially if it's a type of aircraft that is still in use. So there's spare parts. Uh, there are pieces that might have a hazmat issue or some type of other danger to it, a risk factor to it that they'll pull out. And then there's the classification. Uh, with the 117, a lot of that had to do with classifications. Uh, the radar absorbent material on the outside of the aircraft, all that had to be removed. All that is still classified. And then as Andy talked about the leading edges and all kinds of other pieces, all of that stuff is still classified. So it has to come off before we can even get it. Now, Andy, you made a comment the other day when I walked down and I was going to check it out that kind of it struck me and it's it's been with me ever since and that was you were showing me some pieces in the back of the aircraft and it was one I, I believe was a particular uh, section a titanium section in the back of the aircraft that you said just that small piece alone was probably cost as much as some people's homes like maybe my home oh there's a lot of stuff on this plane you like when you said you know it's 1970s technology but it's you know, first off, it's aerospace 1970s technology, and it's advanced aerospace 1970s technology that wasn't available to the public. So there's a lot of um, interesting construction on this thing, structurally and, and otherwise. I mean, a lot of the materials, some of the materials we didn't get because they're still Lockheed proprietary, not because they're classified, but because Lockheed owns the license to the to the technology and they just they're not giving it away um so there's some stuff that's still it's a technological advantage for Lockheed to hold on to um so how about that for you know 40 years later yeah um you know construction of an of a, an advanced fighter from even 40 years ago is um an amazing thing especially to somebody who's like an engineering geek like myself who is a structures guy to look at just you know a big titanium forging in the back of this thing um, that's milled and machined. Um, and, it's just and, and very no, expensive, this, this very is, expensive construction. You can see how these things end up costing as many millions of dollars as they do because they spare no expense. The, the whole objective of the airplane was to perform and, and nothing else. Right. And, that, and nobody guess, cared what the part cost. That's the part that I can't get my head wrapped around is that you're talking about an aircraft that costs millions of dollars. And I get it. It's 1970s millions of dollars or 80s millions of dollars, but still. And yet they're sitting out in this in the middle of, as you guys put it, nowhere. And if we don't get a hold of one of them, I mean, what happens to it? Pop I mean, cans. Yeah. I, mean, I just... <laughs> Titanium it, pop can. It just seems like it just seems <laughs> really, like, really good pop cans. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Super stealthy pop cans. But I, I guess that's the part that that I kind of struggle with is how how is it that there's not a different process to take all of this incredible tech and and in some way repurpose it for something or maybe they do and they just don't talk about it. But 
that to think that if our aircraft, the test bed for the F-117 program doesn't arrive in Ashland, Nebraska at our museum, that it just gets scrapped? I mean, is that, is that accurate? It'll get parted out. Because, like I said, it's they're still yeah. flying a couple of those. But for my Honda, I mean, well, no, they're still flying a couple of those. They'll, they'll <laughs> cannibalize what they can yeah. for the planes that are still flying. Yeah. The uh, yeah. the airframe itself might be broken down for scrap, yeah. but the components are all modular. Everything inside that can be plug and played into something else somewhere else in the air fleet. Maybe even something new that we don't know about even though some of that technology might be obsolete. But it's all modular so that it can be plug and played, except for the airframe itself. Everything is plug and or pull in, pull in place. Visiting with Mark Straley, our education director, Jeff Kalaski, our facilities director, Brian York, curator Andy Beamer, our restoration manager, talking about the F-117 Nighthawk. And uh, want to jump into next uh, a little bit about the trip back from Tonopah, traveling across the Southwest and, and central states to get back here to Ashland. And also uh, want to bring uh, our executive director, Jeff Cannon, back in uh, for a little surprise that we have when we talk about new aircraft coming to the museum. And uh, we'll talk about that here coming up on the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. Visit us online at sacmuseum.org. More of the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast coming up. When you become a member of the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum, not only do you enjoy unlimited admission to our world-class aircraft and aerospace museum, you help us preserve aviation history for future generations, restore aircraft, create new exhibits, and educate youth in our wide variety of programs focused on science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Memberships are available for individuals, family, school teachers, and military. With your membership funds, you enable the museum to continue to grow and further its mission. Learn more about becoming a member of the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum at sacmuseum.org. Promoting learning through imaginative, innovative, and inspirational educational programs and exhibits. Visit sacmuseum.org to learn more. Now back to the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. Back on the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you have not already, if you have not already, please subscribe so that you uh, never miss an episode. One of the things we wanted to mention, we're going to be jumping back into our series celebrating the 75th anniversary of Strategic Air Command. So we've got a lot of fantastic interviews and uh, stories to share with that coming up on future um, editions of our podcast. So the F-117 Nighthawk, the Nebraska Nighthawk, our stealth fighter, is now in the museum down in restoration. In fact, if you uh, head through our uh, Sack Lunch Cafe, grab a bite to eat, and then you can step right out of the cafe onto the restoration floor and be up and close to the uh, F-117. Check it out. It is here, but it was a trip to get it back and uh, visiting with Brian York, our uh, curator, Mark Straley, education director, and Jeff Kalaski. They were the task force, Jeff, our facilities director. They were the task force that brought this uh, F-117 back, along with the good folks over at Landstar. Can't forget them. But, um, I mean, there's there's moving out of your apartment. There's moving out of your home and getting stuff from one place to another. And, Jeff, you know that for sure because you've just moved into a, a new home recently. But uh, wh- what was that like? I mean, I guess I, I want to go around the room to each one of you and talk a little bit about what your highlight was of the trip. I mean, the part where you thought this is really, really cool. Um I know for me, it was probably the video that you guys shot. I don't know if you were in Nevada still or if you were in Utah yet, but Mark, I had no idea you were a harp player. That was, uh, that was pretty good <laughs> hearing you on the harmonica. Only a little bit. Only a little bit. So Jeff, for you, I guess, what was the, 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 the part, what, what were the, like, the feeling of, of like traveling with this you know, yeah. m- massive stealth fighter? Yeah, I think you know, for me, this type of aircraft is not one that, you know, we see a lot of different aircraft here at the museum and, you know, in my military experience and all that, but this is just a different looking aircraft. You know, there, you don't see things like this every day. So just when we first drove onto the test range and, and 
drove up to this aircraft and saw it sitting on the bed because we got there when they were already loading it onto the the flatbed it kind of takes you by surprise because of the just the strange shapes of the the aircraft I and mean, you can see pictures of it all day but until it's right in front of you um, it's kind of awe-inspiring and you know we then getting to drive behind it a couple of us had the opportunity to ride in one of the pilot vehicles for a while and get a little bit closer during the drive and get some uh, photos and videos and things like that but um, probably my favorite part of the of the trip was the attention we were getting. Yeah. <laughs> um, not only on social media. So it was kind of fun, you know, taking it and sending you the, the pictures and videos, seeing them show up on online and then seeing all the comments of people telling me to get my tush off of the, uh, the aircraft, which that was, that. that was Jeff, by the way, he was oh, he immediately was told me, I, I told him not to do it. No, you didn't. <laughs> it was encouraged. No. Um, but every stop we made, I mean, hindsight, we should have had a recording device to talk to every single one of these uh, people that came up and, and talked to us about it because the questions we got about, you know, where did this thing come from? Where's, uh, you know, what is this thing? That would have been an interesting story in and of itself, uh, especially because we were on, you know, mostly highways and things in smaller towns. Uh, we didn't do any interstate i mean there was maybe a little bit but not much um but i think the uh, just the attention the the head turning every time someone had to pull to the side of the road to let us through um, which was a experience in and of itself the the type of almost i think mark referred to at one point as a as a chaotic ballet or something like that where you know these pilot cars and the, the the truck driver getting off to the side of the road to let people through and then you know all of that is just so synchronized where you know from someone who's never done that thinking that this is you know what's so hard about driving behind a, a load with your lights flashing and you know essentially on cruise control there's nothing cruise control about it these these people were working really hard to make sure that it all uh happened safely and everyone uh was paying attention to the load as it was driving. So that in and of itself was was pretty incredible to watch. But it was fun seeing people on the side of the road sticking their uh, phones out the window and taking pictures and uh, coming up to us. And, you know, in these small towns, people were literally calling their friends saying, get over here and look at this thing. You know, we we see a lot of stuff come through here. We've never seen anything like this. Mm-hmm. That That's where, you know, we're hearing people in gas stations and things talk about it. Um, so it, it was fun being a part of that and being able to kind of, like, yeah, well it's ours. So <laughs> we're, we're going to take it home and, and display it. Yeah. Unless I missed something, Mark, it seemed like the entire trip back, you guys were really blessed with some pretty decent weather. I mean, it did get cold, but it, it, it was very comfortable. We only had a little bit of rain here and there. Uh, wasn't for very long, wasn't usually in a tough spot. We had one spot where we were going through some mountains and ridges where it was kind of bad, but I got a nice photograph of us going up into the mountains and the mist coming down as we were driving into, uh, 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 oblivion, so to speak. Sure. It was kind of a cool photo. Cause the aircraft wasn't covered. I mean, it was, it was exposed on the back of that, of that trailer. So, I mean, you know, any hail or anything like that, that could have potentially happened that wouldn't have been pleasant we wouldn't have been happy with hail but washing out the airplane a little bit probably wasn't a bad thing we're trying to help restoration out so was there a favorite spot for you mark i uh my favorite spot i think was going through the eisenhower tunnel a short stretch i think interstate 70 they stopped all the traffic for us i was in one of the pilot cars immediately behind uh, the uh, aircraft and uh, we followed about three or four feet off the trailer through the tunnel. They shut down all the traffic as we moved eastbound. And then as we continued down the other side, they held the traffic back for a few minutes. So we were three or four miles down the other side before any traffic began to catch up with us. I think that was my favorite spot because we had time and breathing space. We weren't worried about any other vehicles in the vicinity. But Brian, now Colorado and Kansas were the, because you traveled through Nevada, Utah, Colorado, Kansas, and then into Nebraska, correct? That was, yes. that was the right. Colorado and, and in Kansas, you, you guys did not have 
any law enforcement uh, escort, did you? Correct. Uh, in Nevada, we had uh, two state troopers, one in the front, one in the back. Uh, and again, these folks were incredible. When we stopped at the Utah border, uh, they had their buddies showing up to see this thing, uh, which was great. Going through Utah, we had three state troopers, which they were constantly maneuvering to keep the, the roads open for us and also to keep other traffic moving. Colorado, Kansas, and Nebraska did not require uh, state trooper escorts. Uh, their uh, width limits were different, which it, Colorado, we were a little nervous. Uh, talking well, I was going to say, how do, how do you facilitate getting through the Eisenhower Tunnel with uh, with no law enforcement support or, or escort or anything? I mean, uh, well, with that one there, it, was, it worked well just because you have, uh, they have an oversized load area uh, where you have to stop and check your brakes. They actually, you have to pop the cab and they have to go in and they have to verify you have good brakes to make it down the other side. They actually stop the traffic because they understand that if something happens in that tunnel, all traffic stopped for a very long time. So it's in their best interest to clear all that for us. Uh, Colorado was the one that they were probably most nervous about because we were taking, as uh, Jeff Mark said, uh, essentially state highway, two lane highway. And it gets very narrow there. So I, you know, we're hauling a load that's nearly 20 feet wide. And so we're taking one and a half to one and three quarter lanes. So people have to move off to the side and wait. But Landstar did a great job with finding spots for us to pull off to, to relieve that uh, backup behind us and let other traffic keep moving through. But then getting around, once we got around Denver, everything really opened up a lot. And largely it's just you know population base. And going into Kansas, uh, taking that highway, we didn't really run into as much. Again, we were on a, a Saturday afternoon. There wasn't a lot of traffic going there. So that helped out. And coming through Nebraska, they, we ran into some traffic here or there. But a lot of folks just coming, you know, coming back to the museum, a lot of folks saw us coming and they pulled off. And they were, I think, just as excited as us seeing the aircraft get in closer to home. And it worked really well. There was certain stretches of highway. And I was personally a little surprised in Colorado that we didn't need some sort of escort through there. I mean, of course, it's still all permitted routes and everything. And they all, they still, you know, Landstar and everyone still did what they needed to do as far as permits. So they did know we were coming. But there were certain stretches of, uh, of road through the mountains and everything where, you know, a good couple feet of the side of the fuselage are hanging over essentially a cliff. Oh, you know, you've got guardrail and you, but these drivers are having to go as close to the edge as they can to let the traffic come through on one side. But that's what the pilots are there for to tell them how much room they got and all of that. But there was a couple feet of this fuselage hanging off this over the guardrail and they're watching the reflectors, and I think we only lost maybe two reflectors in a barrel throughout the whole trip, which is... Well, the, the barrel wasn't our fault, though. Yeah, that's true. Just it, jumped to, right, it jumped right out in front of us. None of it was our fault. Just to paint a picture, <laughs> though, the aircraft is roughly seven feet off the ground, the bottom of the mm -hmm. aircraft, because it's sitting on two foam blocks, 60 PSI or 60 foot-pounds squared uh, foam, which was amazing. But then there's chains that go down to the trailer itself at about a 45-degree angle from the uh, uh, wing mounts on the aircraft. And those chains were the things they were actually watching mm -hmm. because they hang below the aircraft. The aircraft go right over all those guardrails, no problem, but it's the chainage that they have on there to keep it from getting away. So even with all of those challenges that you had through certain sections of the route, which, you know, we announced what the route was once the, the F-117 and, and the convoy hit Nebraska, but we really didn't talk about or share what our route was well and, and in kind of in hindsight that might not have been such a bad idea considering certain areas I could see people wanting to watch and it might have made it difficult for you guys but as a result it seemed like everything was accelerated no pun intended but that your trip back you, you covered the ground I mean it was, it was what 2,000 miles we were flying you got <laughs> I mean not literally but it feels like you guys was it really that kind of quiet on the road so to speak getting back or I, I, I think what really benefited us, one is coming from Tonopah to the Utah border there in Nevada, we have to stop because the state patrol was essentially contracted for the next morning. So we can't just keep pushing. 
Um, making that route uh, seemed fairly easy uh, in getting there. And once we stopped at the border there, we started getting a lot of attention. A lot of people stopping, you know, take a look. Then going past there, going through Utah, we had the street, three state patrolmen, you know, cruisers with us. That really helped us move pretty quick. And it, I think getting up around Provo, we started seeing a lot more traffic, but it still went very quick. When they dropped us off at the Colorado border, we got to keep going. Uh, Landstar made the decision that we're, because we could only drive during daylight hours. We were restricted to that. But because of the time of year, that was a little bit extended. So they wanted to push a little farther. And we were all up for it, so we did. We pushed a little farther in Colorado, spent the night. That gave, gave us a lead in getting a little, you know, farther the next day. And by the time Sunday came around, they looked at it and they said, you know, if we push a little bit, we'll get back to the museum almost a day early. Now, did you guys find as you were stopping that the excitement and the interest, would it, would it sort of build up so that overnight you'd wake up the next morning and, and have a lot of folks out there taking photographs and, and sort of hanging out around it? Was, was there secu- like a security detail with the aircraft? Overnight, Landstar uh, driver, uh, he uh, and his wife, uh, their team driver, they have an incredible truck that they stay right there with it. So they're in it. Um, let's see. I, I think every place that we stayed except for in Kansas, uh, we were within 100 feet probably of the aircraft at a motel. So it's uh, – and a lot of these places are well off the beaten path. But, yes, we saw a lot of folks from the time we stopped and in the mornings – There'd be a lot of folks, you know, milling around, looking at it, getting photos. Everyone was very excited, as uh, Jeff was talking about. Uh, I know in Kansas, we stopped for fuel at one place, and we had a lot of people taking notice, calling other people. Uh, One gentleman told me that uh, we've got to plan another aircraft move because this was the most exciting thing they've seen in about five years. <laughs> mm-hmm. we'll, we'll leave the name of the town out of the, <laughs> I guess, I'm sure there might be some people that'll take that personally. But um, so I, the, the last thing that I wanted to ask you guys about before we, uh, we jump into the next steps with our F-117 and bring Andy back in, being from Nebraska, having the, the museum here in Ashland and hitting the Nebraska-Kansas border and, and realizing that you're in the final stretch and bringing it home, um, just from like, you know, uh, just kind of a life perspective and your background, all of your backgrounds in, in military, like what, what was that, that sensation, that feeling that just of how cool, I mean, cause really it was, I think by that point, when you guys hit the border from people following along on social media and everything else, they were like, man, maybe I should have asked Jeff if I could go on this trip <laughs> because it was it, it looked and sounded really, really cool, Mark. Well, I'd just say with regard to delivering capabilities, the F-117, F-117A program really is an impressive achievement. We talked about the money invested, but what it really does is it saves lives. Instead of using hundreds of bombers or tens of bombers to drop hundreds or thousands of bombs to hit a single target, we can surgically select targets and deliver ordnance, minimizing the casualties on the ground and minimizing casualties amongst our own troops. It's an amazing ability to be able to slide through radar, not be targeted, deliver that ordnance with one or two rounds, and then be able to get away and do it again. This program is absolutely necessary and set off a brand new look at how we do warfare so i felt that along this trip the whole way even when we used a cooler to prop up the front gear doors when they fell down because the latches weren't quite clean your cooler full of water right yes water yes water other beverages but i guess you know really from your perspective and with what you're sharing mark i mean being the director of our education program and having, you know, er everything that we do with our STEM activities and and our programs, you know, it's tying it back into our collection and the amazing aircraft that surround us here every day. And, and I, and I think that probably all of us to a certain extent, I don't want to say take it for granted, but we come here every day. We see the aircraft. We kind of go about our business. We do our thing. This F-117 coming in that restoration hangar and being parked, I think that maybe sort of jolted all of us 
back into realizing how cool it is and what we're surrounded by and, and the technological and engineering advancements that happened and the story that can be told. So you have to be really excited about how this F-117 is going to be integrated into that STEM programming. Well, as the president mentioned earlier, innovation, technology, that's all deep in, embedded with the STEM we're working very hard to try and use this aircraft to describe a variety of things to our students, inform our programs for overnights, scouting, after-school outreach, uh, in-museum programs, and our virtual programming. But what I was struck by this morning, literally felt like I was hit between the eyes with a two-by-four, was the personal human story, not only attached to the aircraft, the program, and all the people in it, but it was brought home to me by Don Peterson, one of our volunteers down in restoration, as he's working on the project management plan to restore the aircraft. When you do a project like this, you have to think about safety. You have to think about what you want it to look like. What are the materials going to be? How do we set the work plan to make the work plan go? So I just want to say that I'm trying to figure out how to invest and collect that information so that we can add project management to the engineering portion of our STEM. And I want to thank Andy and Restoration for the work they do down there to make that kind of stuff happen. Yeah, and we're going to ask a little bit about what that work is going to entail because it's it's quite a bit. But Jeff, being our facilities director, the you know the person in charge of keeping this place buttoned up, your feelings about pulling into the uh, you know off of West Park Highway. Uh, in, in, in bringing our, our F-117 home. Yeah, I can say, you know, for me, coming into Nebraska probably was a little bit more exciting for the rest because I don't care who you are, but four or five days with these guys on the road <laughs> is a lot to put up with, especially... What are you trying to say? <laughs> especially when you're cruising and you're listening to some blues and all of a sudden you hear a harmonica next to you. <laughs> start start playing right along with the music worst buddy movie ever <laughs> no it was it was fun um but really i mean mark said it well the you know coming coming home with it after all of the anticipation is it's a good feeling i mean you almost feel a little bit celebrity status you know um, coming down the road, we see uh, Jeff Cannon in his in his Porsche <laughs> pulling up in front of us and and escorting us in, and the 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 sheriffs doing their thing, and you know I know that my family was there to yeah. to welcome us, yep. and there was a lot of people there, and coming around that corner, you know it's it's a cool feeling for sure, uh, and you know for as long as I've been working here for the last year, we've been talking about getting this and seeing it here and being you know, invited along to, to join, um, is a really cool thing. And now I'm excited to, to try to, uh, you know, to be a part of, you know, moving these aircraft to, you know, if you've never been out here, we have a big museum, but there's a lot of aircraft in it. So, so manipulating all of these to put them where they need to go for the collection and, and, and everything it's, I'm excited to be a part of that. I know it's going to be uh, a challenge, and I know there's disagreements on where all of these are going to be going. It's, it's interesting to see how quickly <laughs> 330,000 square feet can get filled up. Filled up when you have aircraft <laughs> of this size, absolutely. Brian, uh, for you, you know, the, the, our curator, the keeper of the stories, you know, making sure that the story is continued um, and, and that we continue to tell it. For you, from your perspective, with the U2 that from where we're sitting here right now doing this podcast, I can look out the the conference room window and I can see it. We've got our SR-71 sitting in the gallery right as you walk in. And now we've got this F-117. Your feelings about how we're able to continue telling that stealth story. Uh, well, first of all, John, I want to commend you. You picked out the three Lockheed aircraft. Thank you. Uh, and they're also all yes, black. Yes, they are. Um, it's, as far as telling this story, uh, dealing uh, with the topic uh, and technology of stealth, uh, the F-117 is a huge piece of that. Uh, we talk a little bit about it with you know, the U-2 a little bit uh, and with the SR-71. But with the F-117, this is an aircraft that was purposely built to fly lower than either of the other two aircraft, uh, slower than the SR-71, but still be invisible. And so it, just looking at how that is done through the design of the aircraft, design of materials, everything they take into consideration to make that possible. 
I'm I'm excited. It's as they've talked as uh, Jeff and Mark have talked about the day of bringing this home. Uh, coming across the Nebraska border uh, obviously was a big thing. Going through York, Nebraska, going by that 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 was that was nice. I like that. You know, people looking uh, as we got video for folks going through. I think it was Shelby, Nebraska. Mm-hmm. That was a lot of fun. What I probably enjoyed the most was going through Ashland, down the highway to the museum and pulling in there and seeing folks, you know, stop and look, seeing folks out there waiting for us. Uh, that's to me is what probably the, the biggest thing is we get to bring this story to them, uh, pulling into the back of the museum, back in that thing, into the museum. And we've got family and friends, uh, museum staff, volunteers all here. And we're bringing them this history, this story, this technology that is going to be here for generations to come. And we get to see this. We get to see the anticipation. Uh, people looking and just, it, it, they, they can't wait. Um, we got that feel when we're on the road from the stops we made, but also from people following us on social media. Uh, fans of the museum, fans of Strategic Air Command, of the F-117. That was probably one of my favorite things, is to see people rally around this and get excited about this and knowing that we're going to bring this to folks for generations to come. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And you, know, you guys are kind of the rock stars there for a week, uh, drive, driving this thing back. O'Brien, I'm, I want you to get that mic over to uh, to Andy because now, now that the uh, – the reality TV show is is over, and you guys have gotten this F one seventeen back safely. Thank you, and again, thanks to Landstar for all of their help. Um, now we get down to the nitty gritty of uh, getting this thing uh, fixed and and ready to go to be permanently displayed. And Andy, um, it's it's no small task. I mean, there is there is a lot of work to be done, and I guess where do you start what 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 is going to be the first you know few items there on that to-do list for our nighthawk well like anything else the first thing you the, the first step is cleaning and assessment and in this case um the cleaning involves uh everything and taking out a whole lot of blast media they have this plastic beads that they use to blast the paint off of it um we're lucky you know it's great to have a depainted aircraft to start with. Normally we don't. Um, so, but the downside of that is that the, the plastic blast media gets everywhere. So it's like a sort of like a, a, a day at the at the nude beach. <laughs> so uh, there's there's sand everywhere. Um, so you. I think we're done brother, here. My little brother. Um, so anyway, you got to depanel the aircraft, and we've got tons and tons of plastic blast media to get out of there. Um, last weekend, they took these panels called the Aztecs back in the exhaust area out and got a full garbage can of media out. It probably weighs a 200 pounds, wow. um, which isn't bad. They told me that the Lockheed plane had like 1,800 pounds of media in it. Um, ours, we got lucky. They said they were nice and did extra cleaning on ours. And additionally, had the fire department next door at Tonopah wash it off before the plane left um, to come here. Um, so ours has been relatively clean, but it is still there's media everywhere. So the first thing is cleaning, and also assessment and comparing what the what the restoration drawings from Lockheed say to do for fabrication with respect to what we're, we really have, what what the aircraft is and what our shop um, can do and what our requirements are. Some of the drawings, um, items that are really for an aircraft that will be displayed outdoors. So like for instance, there'll be a screen that, and the drawings call for a cover. We don't need to do that. So there's a, a lot of assessment that needs to be done about what we need to fabricate, what we don't need to fabricate, whether the fabrication method called out in the drawings is an appropriate method for us and for what we want to do, um, so that um, there'll be some some invention, like usual, um, um, on on our part. Maybe some pilot programs on fi- figuring out. Um, I think th- some other muse- museums have had um, an inter- interesting time figuring out how to deal with the amount of leading edge, trailing edge 
type of, of stuff that we have to do. I mean, I think my rough calculation was at least 130 feet of leading edges and trailing edges to fabricate. So a lot of this is well, for the a lot. a lot of this is for the exterior of the aircraft. When you when you yeah, jump in, the, the interior is very good. The cockpit is really good. Um, you know, the cockpit is reasonably complete and really pretty clean. And it's a that's a preservation item. That's not really a restoration item. Um, you know. In a little bit, when when Chuck Carrick is done with stickers and decals on the 135, we'll put him in the cockpit. When he stops giggling, he'll clean it up, um, and th and that and that's really all that needs. That doesn't need full restoration. Um, normally, after the cleaning and the assessment period, is you're you're in structural preservation mode, which which for most of our old aircraft means your corrosion control and replacing um, things that are rotted. Um, in this case, we don't have that, so we'll be just into heavy fabrication. So that's probably my, my quick estimate. It's going to be about, you know, it's about a two-year program, I think. And so do we anticipate that at any point during the restoration that the, the aircraft will be out of view of our guests? So, I mean, it's right now is a really, really good time to be coming to the museum to see this because at some point we're going to need to set up that time-lapse camera, which by the way, we have a really cool video of the, uh, of the F-117 being uh, offloaded. Um, but there, there will be, there will come a point where you're not going to be able to see the F-117 for a while with the work that you have to do. Well, there, you know, like anything else, there's, there's, there's stuff that we do that it's, it's, it's best that the, you know, people not be around that's, you know, there's more and less hazardous stuff that we do to the airplane. So, yeah. Um, I know that between you and your partner in crime, Dan Kerwin, who's here managing restoration on the weekends and all the volunteers that we have, all you have to do is come and look at the EC-135 to realize how incredibly talented um, they are with the work that they've done. So I think everyone's super excited to see what happens with this F-117. Hopefully it'll turn out as well as the rest of the stuff, you know, 135. Remember, paint comes last, so usually, like like most projects, it, things will look slightly ugly for a really long time, and then at the end, all of a sudden, poof, you know. Yep, you get the paint look on pretty, you. yeah. Andy Beamer, our restoration manager, thank you. Brian York, our curator. Mark Straley, our education director. Jeff Kalaski, our facilities director. Appreciate you guys all joining me and You're talking welcome, about John. this aircraft today. I'm going to wrap He's things up. so polite. We're going to wrap things up <laughs> with our, our president and CEO, Jeff Cannon, because, um, Jeff, we've been talking. A lot of it has been, okay, the EC-135 here. We're, we're just minutes, and I'll have you move that in front of you, Jeff. But we've got the EC-135, which is going to be uh, – you know what? I'm going to have you go on the record right now on this podcast because we've had a lot of people that have been asking about, I, I know you don't want me to bring this up, but I'm going to bring it up because we need to talk about it because it needs to come from your mouth so everybody can just know what's going on. The wings for the EC-135. The aircraft will be displayed, we believe, in Hangar A to start without its wings, but the plan is... well. There are going to be a lot of changes at the museum over the next few years. So that's one of the things that keeps us very excited about the future of the museum. The plans for the EC-135 short term will be to display it without the wings near it. And they still have to be restored. The nacelles for the engines, they has to be restored. So that's going to take time. And we have other projects ahead of that. Long term, in a few years, when we are moving aircraft around and we have it in its final location, the wings will not be reattached to the aircraft, but they will be put in place where they should be. This makes it a very practical solution for moving aircraft around in the future. So people will see the aircraft and the wings where they should be, but they're not going to be attached. But that leads into further discussion about what happens in the future of the museum. Right. And that is the th that is the plan with the EC135. You've heard about the F117. We're looking at probably about a 2-year process to get that handled, but um 
Jeff, you you like you like your toys. Uh, um, you, you're like my hero when it comes to to autos, uh, motoring, and uh, when it comes to aircraft, you're not messing around because we are uh, we are not stopping with the F one seventeen and waiting another fifteen years before we get an aircraft in here. The days of excitement that happen here in at the museum are on a roll. They're continuing. Yeah. We have. Uh, in the short term, plans for other additions to the museum. I realize the F-117 was a great uh, bookend for the end of the Cold War. That's what it represented, really, as far as its technology. But remember, this is a Cold War. The story of Strategic Air Command is still the primary mission of this institution. So we talk about STEM, we talk about innovation and all the other programs, but Strategic Air Command is the, the heart and soul of this museum. And that means that we have to talk about the Cold War. That is the traditional subject of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union was our enemy during the Cold War. That's just a simple fact. And in our collection, we have uh, at this point only one aircraft uh, represented by the Soviet Union, which is our MiG-21. And uh, we have the opportunity now to add another uh, distinctive aircraft that flew at the East German markings, but it was a Russian MiG-23. And this aircraft is coming to us in just a few weeks from uh, Wright-Patterson, the United States Air Force Museum. And so we're excited to announce that we have another aircraft coming to the museum. And the neat thing about the MiG-23 is it's uh, it's the Soviet answer to the FB-111, which we also have. So being able to display the aggressor aircraft, um, enemy aircraft, next to another modern marvel of American innovation, the FB-111, is where we're going next. But we're not stopping there. But now I, I want to ask you, though, we're not anticipating that there's going to be a ton of restoration work that has to, I mean, as far as in, in, in the scheme of things like with the F-117, this this MiG-23 is going to show up. I mean, is it pretty much immediately going to go out onto the floor? or how, what, What's the timeline there? Well, we're, we're <laughs> negotiating kind of what we're doing with moving our aircraft around as Andy shakes his head and Brian laughs at me. Um, but the, the aircraft is coming... The aircraft is coming pretty much fully complete. Um, the wings have to be taken off, but they're going to be reassembled to the aircraft once it gets here. And once the MiG-23 gets here, we'll evaluate it to see if there's anything we need to do with it, in which case it may be sitting uh, out in the back parking lot for a short period of time. But we are anticipating right now that this aircraft is going to be complete and put back together and being able to display. So um, yeah, that's, uh, that, that, that is the immediate uh, sense of that. But again, as Andy said, we've got to see it when it gets here to see if there's anything we've got to do to it. Sure. And we're, we're actually not even stopping there. If you're heading westbound on I-80 right now, you see, uh, I believe that's the 105. The F-105 is still on the stick out there. That aircraft is a MiG killer. Um, that aircraft does not deserve a fate of being stuck on a stick on the interstate. So the F-105 is going to become, uh, it's going to come up to the museum, and it's uh, getting in the queue for restoration, and uh, its future will be inside the museum on the floor at some point. Yeah, and we, we still haven't mentioned, um, or I should say almost forgot to mention, the uh, the Avro Vulcan, which is sitting out on our back ramp. Well, we have, we have, again, there's two more things to add to that. First of all is the Vulcan. As soon as the EC-135, as soon as we feel like it's complete enough and we can move it out, um, finding it its permanent home, well, short-term home, then the Avro Vulcan comes inside. But on top of that, we are finally have the opportunity to repaint the B1A that sits out in front of the museum, and that's going to happen in July. And actually, Brian, I think you had mentioned um, recently that's going to be that first week of July that they're going to start the process on that. So it should be by the middle of August that that's completed. Yeah, it's a the company that's doing it for us will show up uh, around the first of July. Uh, they'll do a more in-depth assessment. They're going to do a little bit of uh, kind of repair uh, to some areas, and then they go into the the paint. Uh, they say it takes about six weeks to get it done. Brian, Jeff, Andy, Mark, Jeff. Uh, thank you all so very much for your time today. Really appreciate it. You're welcome, John. Our Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum. Make make sure that you subscribe. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We also have our YouTube channel. You can check out all the great videos that we have, uh, walkthroughs of some of the different oh, hey, John. Uh, aircraft. Yes, Brian. Thank you. Yep, thank you. L little, little harmonica music to take us out. Into the sunset. <laughs>
That's going to do it for this uh, episode of our Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. You can check out past episodes at sacmuseum.org. Take care. (laughs) This has been the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. Email marketing at sacmuseum.org for more information, questions, and suggestions. Learn more about events, programs, and exhibits at the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum at sacmuseum.org.